These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Coffee with Jeff, the podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and then write it into a entertaining story, or at least that's the idea. This is episode 215, and today I have the story of the day in which dozens of dangerous man-eating animals, including a polar bear, a panther, a lion, several hyenas, a rhinoceros, and a Bengal tiger, escaped from the Central Park Zoo. They killed 49 men, women, and children, and injured hundreds more. This horrendous tragedy is known as the New York Zoo hoax. Um, it's a hoax because not only did no one die or get injured, but all the animals were still safely locked away in their cages. What's this all about? I'll tell you in just a minute. sun, freshly appearing over the horizon, has begun to bring the city to life. Thousands of people, men, women, and children, get ready to start a new week. Sitting at the kitchen table, the day begins with a cup of coffee and a quick read of the morning paper. This day begins like every other Monday, until the newspaper headline is read. The date is November 9, 1874, and the paper is a well-respected journal, so when you read about an awful calamity, a carnival of death, panic sets in. The paper in hand is the New York Herald, a publication that was started by James Gordon Bennett Sr. in 1835. Since its inception, its readership has grown to more than 84,000. It was later taken over by his son, James Gordon Bennett Jr., The younger Bennett was responsible for one of the greatest stories of the day, one that won the paper international acclaim. In 1871, Bennett Jr. sent 28-year-old reporter Henry Morgan Stanley to Africa to look for David Livingstone, who had been missing for four years. Stanley would eventually find the man after a 700-mile, six-month expedition through the tropical forest and utter the famous line, Dr. Livingstone, I presume? Okay, maybe he did, or maybe he didn't say those immortal words. But for his whole life, Stanley claimed that's what he said. And that's the way the Herald reported the meeting in a story published on July 1st, 1872. Now it's November 9th, 1874, and James Gordon Bennett Jr. is still running the paper. And on this morning, they would run another story that would get immediate attention from the whole city. The headline read, Awful calamity. The wild animals broke loose from Central Park. Terrible scenes of mutilations. Savage brutes at large. A shocking Sabbath carnival of death. Then the story begins. Another Sunday of horror has been added to those already memorable in our city's annals. The sad and appalling catastrophe of yesterday is a further illustration of the unforeseen perils to which large communities are exposed. Writing even at this late hour, without full details of the terrors of the evening and night, 
and without a necessarily complete list of the killed and mutilated, we pause for a moment at the widespread sorrow of the hour to cast a hasty glance over what will be felt as a great calamity for many years. Reading on, the horrors quickly become apparent. It seems that Central Park Zoo, a 6.5-acre wildlife park, has somehow had a major security break, and most, if not all, of its dangerous animals have managed to escape. It goes on to say, We have a list of 49 killed, of only which 27 bodies have been identified, and it is much to be feared that this large total of fatalities will be much increased with the return of daylight. Twelve of the wild carnivorous beasts are still at large, their lurking places not being known for a certainty. But the citizens may rest assured that if they will only exercise ordinary prudence and leave the task of hunting down the animals to the authorities, who have, somewhat tardily, taken matters in hand, there will be no further casualties to register as the outcome of this unfortunate act of a reckless keeper in Central Park. In the paper, there's a statement by Mayor William Frederick Havemayer, a proclamation stating that all citizens should stay indoors except for the National Guard. There's a story of Governor John A. Dix, who shot a Bengal tiger in the streets, and another horrific tale of a rhinoceros that broke free and charged a group of young girls, killing one. It would be impossible at this late hour to describe the numerous scenes of dismay and disaster. The hospitals are full of the wounded. There are 15 bodies at the morgue and several at various precincts. A sentiment of horror pervades the community. A rush of fear and panic would sweep across any reader. But what to do? Stay inside until all the beasts are killed or captured? Or maybe grab a shotgun and join the hunt? For it's not every day you get a chance to hunt wild game in the streets of New York City. Many people were doing that, arming themselves, and heading towards Central Park to make the city safe again. Fearful parents were keeping their kids from school. Many adults and reporters storming police headquarters demanding answers. Some people even headed to the New York piers, hoping to escape by boat. The thing is, this article was a long one, over 10,000 words. Most people didn't have to read the whole article to know the city was in trouble. And just like Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio show in 1938, in which, if you missed the intro, you wouldn't have known it was only a radio play, those who stopped reading the article before the end missed the most important part. For those who read the last paragraph, there would be a huge relief. The entire story given above is pure fabrication. Not one word is true. Not a single act or incident described has taken place. It's a huge hoax, a wild romance, or whatever other epithet of utter untrustworthiness our readers may choose to apply to it. It's just a fancy picture which crowded upon the mind of the writer a few days ago while he was gazing through the iron bars of the cages of the wild animals in the menagerie at Central Park. But, like I said, most didn't get to the end. They put down the paper quickly, wondering if it was safe to go outdoors. So why would the New York Herald print such a story that would surely cause panic? Let's begin by talking about the man who was running the paper. James Gordon Bennett Jr. was a tall, thin man of 32 years. He was a distinguished gentleman with a mustache who was one of the richest men in New York City. He was born on May 10, 1841 in New York with a silver spoon in his mouth. He lived his younger years in France where he was educated. 
When he was 16, he returned to the USA in style. For the voyage across the Atlantic, he traveled in a 77-ton luxury yacht called Rebecca that his father, James Gordon Bennett Sr., had bought him for his birthday. The senior Bennett is credited for inventing modern journalism in many ways. He created the extra, papers that would come out at unusual times when a breaking story had just happened. He realized the importance of being first. And often, he thought it was more important to be quick than to be accurate in order to get the scoop. He believed in sensationalist gossip. Boy, I'm glad that didn't last, huh? And every story should have a headline that would instantly catch the reader's eye. Journalistic integrity wasn't all that important to the New York Herald. He would even go so far as to not only print stories about the sex lives of others, but even his own. It is said that he gave detailed descriptions of his own honeymoon night. And it worked. The paper was soon the most widely read paper of the time. Of course, the other papers at the time came down hard on the Herald for its sensationalism, and Bennett Sr. made himself quite a few enemies. In fact, that's one of the reasons why he sent his son to France to be educated, to get him out of the public eye. The younger Bennett, at the age of 16, became the youngest member of the New York Yachting Club. He began entering yacht races and did very well, eventually having a new, bigger yacht built, which he called the Henrietta. It was in the Henrietta that he won the first ever transatlantic yacht race in 1866. It went from Sandy Hook, New Jersey, to the Needles, the farthest western point on the Isle of Wight in England. He served in the Civil War, fighting for the Union side, but as far as I can tell, he really didn't see much action. He was a U.S. Revenue Marine 3rd Lieutenant, commanding his own yacht, the Henrietta. But the most interesting part of the young man's life was his passion for partying. He loved to have a good time and to consume a lot of alcohol. His nightlife became legendary. He was known to do things like driving a coach at breakneck speeds through the streets, naked, at the wee hours of the night. These crazy rides gave him the nickname The Mad Commodore. Another story goes that he was at a party thrown by his then-fiancée, Caroline May, only to get incredibly drunk and end up urinating into the fireplace in front of everybody. Needless to say, Caroline and Bennett never got married. He even ended up having a duel with Caroline's brother. Fortunately, both men were such bad shots that no one was injured. This was such a scandal that he left for Europe, and in Paris he started the Paris Herald, a European version of the New York Herald. But years before his exile to Paris, he was running the paper in New York. And we will be right back after a short break with part two of our story. And this is Charlie's Angels, Kelly. It's Charlie's Angels, the slalom caper. Kelly's on skis, imagine crooks can't escape her. Charlie, this is Kelly. I've got some spotted. Charlie's Angels dolls, Sabrina, Chris, and Kelly, and slalom caper each sold separately from Hasbro. Today is January 17th, the 17th day of the year, and I've got a little flashback to some of the events that happened on this day in history. On this day in 1971, Lust for a Vampire the British Hammer horror film was released. It's about the use of the blood of an innocent girl to bring forth evil. Also released on this day in 1975 was Sheba Baby, the American blaxploitation film starring Pam Greer. 
This film's about a Chicago private detective in Kentucky fighting mobsters. In 1966, Sounds of Silence, the second album by Simon and Garfunkel, was released on Columbia Records. Born on this day in 1922 was Betty White, the American Emmy Award-winning actress. She has the longest television career of any entertainer spanning 80 years and was the first woman to produce a TV sitcom. Also born on this day in 1931 was James Earl Jones. Besides being the voice of Darth Vader, he was also in The Great White Hope, Conan the Barbarian, and Field of Dreams. A few other celebrities born on this day were Max Sennett, Sherry Lewis, Andy Kaufman, Muhammad Ali, and Eartha Kitt. In 1984, the Supreme Court finally ruled on what is known as the Betamax case. They ruled that using a VCR to copy television programs did not constitute copyright infringement. For you younger listeners, you might ask your parents just what a VCR is. And one last thing, on this day in 1929, the cartoon character Popeye made his debut in the Daily King Features comic strip, Thimble Theater. And now we return to the Central Park Zoo hoax. James Gordon Bennett Jr. had taken over the New York Herald newspaper from his father. And like his father, he would print stories of his own drunken exploits and sexual affairs. Often these were infused with his sly sense of humor. In fact, it is uncertain, even today, of just how many of these outlandish tales actually happened and how many were just creative storytelling. To get a good story, money was never an issue. Like when he sent Henry Morgan Stanley to look for David Livingstone. The thing is, there was no real reason to find Livingstone, except to have a great story for the Herald. And the paper spent a lot of money for the adventure. Traveling through the jungles of Tanzania with an armed guard, 150 porters, 27 pack animals, and a man in front carrying the flag of the New York Yachting Club. The whole adventure cost the Herald quite a bit of money. But it worked. The story was an international success and one that Bennett would try to repeat. But the zoo hoax story had not been that of Bennett. The story was the creation of Thomas Connery, an editor at the paper. He would take full responsibility, and it was primarily written by Joseph I.C. Clark. It is said when Connery showed Bennett Jr. the story while Bennett was in bed, Bennett made no changes. He didn't make any suggestions. He simply leaned back against his pillows and groaned at the remarkable story. In an article Connery wrote for Harper's Weekly in 1893, almost 20 years later, he tried to explain himself. He wrote, My object was entirely good, to warn the public and the authorities of an impending danger. He would go on to say that in his morning walks on his way to the Herald, he would often walk by the menagerie, which is what they called a zoo at the time. He enjoyed watching the animals in their cages. One day, he wrote, I reached the spot just as the attendants were about to transfer a leopard from an animal carriage to a cage, and I stopped to watch a proceeding that I had never until then beheld. Through carelessness, I suppose, the operation was bungled, and to my horror, I saw the animal slip between the carriage and the cage. I stood rooted to the spot, expecting the next move would be the spring for freedom by the leopard. There were hundreds of people all about, and the leopard, if so minded, would have had no trouble in finding a morning meal. 
So Connery watched as the workers were able to drive the animal into the cage, but it made a great impression on him. He began to think of what horrors would happen if these dangerous animals were able to escape. He saw a problem. And even though the Central Park Menagerie was only 10 years old, it was not what one would call state-of-the-art. Its cages were outdated, flimsy, and in bad need of repair. As he walked on, he couldn't get the incident out of his head. And at first he thought he would write an article about what he had seen, to give the zoo workers a sound scolding in the paper. But then he thought what would be the use in a scolding and a few warnings. The best that would happen would be the men, for a while, would be a little more careful and then fall back into their normal routine. Still, he felt he had to do something, and that night, in bed, an idea popped into his head. A harmless little hoax, he called it, just enough semblance of reality to give a salutary warning. He began jotting down ideas for headlines to give one of his reporters. As far as the panic such a hoax might cause... He said, I only saw the laugh in which the publication of such a tremendous hoax would produce. To my shame be confessed, I was utterly blind to the serious side of the hoax. A writer named Henry O'Connor was the first to take the assignment on, but Connery thought his writing style was a little bit too obvious, so he turned it over to Joseph Clark, the night editor, who wrote the story that appeared on November 9, 1874. The morning of the publication, Thomas Connery was awoke by one of his children, who said, Oh, Papa, what a dreadful thing! Connery began to laugh. Haven't you read it? Didn't you know of it last night before you came home? The child asked. When he went down for breakfast, he found his wife was keeping the children home from school, and the servants were afraid to go outdoors. Every face was pale. Finally, Connery said, Don't you see it's all a joke? Read the end of the article. He found that while on his way to work, everybody was talking about it. No one seemed to get the joke. People were saying things like, have you heard? And are the beasts still at large? It was what Connery called a cold bath. Every time you witnessed something wrong, like people not getting the joke or in a panic, he labeled it another cold bath. He said that he was both amazed and horrified. It was apparent that most people only read the headline and not the rest of the article, or at least not the end. Gentlemen, he witnessed the police superintendent wailing saying to a group of reporters, all looking for answers, I give you my word of honor that I knew absolutely nothing of this dreadful affair until I saw it in the Herald a short time ago. You see, many of the reporters were accusing the police of favoritism as they were wondering why it was only the Herald that had the story. As for James Bennett Jr., he later told Connery, The fun of it all is my friends won't believe such a serious man as you organized that hoax. They'll blame it on me. And he was right. Even today, most accounts of the incident still point the finger right at Bennett. One of the more charming stories Connery told Harper Weekly was that General John A. Dix, who the article said shot a Bengal tiger, actually set forth in the morning with a rifle after reading the story. Again, he only had read the headline and never got to the part where he was mentioned. It might seem odd to the people of today that a story like this could cause such a panic, but you have to remember that this was in the days before TV, radio, or even the telephone. There was no way to check on what was going on. 
The only source of information people had was the newspaper. Now, for days after, Connery was nervous, not about any criminal charges that may well have come, but that he would hear about true casualties of people in a panic. Fortunately, no one was injured and no one died. There was, of course, a backlash from rival papers, who were just looking for a reason to take the Herald down a peg or two. The New York Times, while admitting that the animals in Central Park are confined in the flimsiest cages ever seen, described the article as an intensely stupid and unfeeling hoax, and that it was a violation not only of journalistic propriety and a due respect for the public, but also of common decency and humanity. They printed letters from readers claiming to have been terrified by the story. It also sarcastically commented that if charming sketches of dead children and dying old ladies do not move the reader to roars of laughter, his sense of fun must be somewhat different from those in which the proprietor or editor of the New York Herald had been endowed. The Galveston Daily News wrote, To be in keeping with its enterprise, the Herald should bribe a keeper to let loose a line or two upon occasion so as to bring up the journal's prophetic record. Bennett better recall Stanley from the interiors of Africa. He is a crack lion shot of the Herald establishment and should be at home to protect it. The Tribune printed a letter from someone only identified as Mother. Mother wrote that she never suffered so intently as I did on glancing at that cruel hoax, and that... Can something be done to punish properly or at least rebuke such trifling with the public? It was also reported in the Times that a group of outraged citizens had asked the district attorney's office if the paper could face legal actions for the story. Although he promised to look into it, no charges were ever filed. The Herald did offer a half-hearted apology in an article called Wild Beasts, in which they stated that the safety precautions at the zoo had been improved. And while the public was not impressed, the paper circulation never decreased. Now, according to the book, The James Gordon Bennett's Father and Son, Proprietors of the New York Herald, by Don Carlos Sees, Don wrote, Indeed, the incident helped rather than hurt the paper. It had given the town something to talk about and had jarred it as it had never been jarred before. The public seemed to like the joke. A little bit before I go. First off, I want to thank Nancy and Gordon Fry for filling in during the month of December. If you haven't listened to those shows yet, what's wrong with you? The first was a timely episode about questionable historical elections. You know, what went on in the election that just happened had happened before. And the second was about a bunch of the Fry's favorite historical films. And if anyone should know just how accurate these films are, it would be Gordon and Nancy. The sad part of this is that of all the movies they mentioned, I've only seen one of them, and that's Tombstone. I gotta get my button gear. Now, for those of you who say, Hey Jeff, weren't you supposed to be back last week? Yes, I was, but you know, sometimes life gets in the way, and sorry. I hope you enjoy the new format. I decided that I wanted to jump into stories right away and save my ramblings till the very end. And that little middle section I did during the break in my story about the events that happened on this day in history. If you'd like to get that on a daily basis with a little video added, 
feel free to join my Facebook group. It's called Daily Morning Coffee. I'm sure if you search for it, you'll find it. But anyway, how about we get to the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. Thank you for listening. You know, I have a Patreon page that helps with the financial burden of running a podcast. If you'd like to help me out, you can contribute. Just go to the Coffee with Jeff website and look for the Patreon link on the left-hand side. More importantly, could you tell your friends about the show? Thanks. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. You're encouraged to suggest story ideas using any of these platforms. And the links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to that on the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank Nancy and Gordon Fry for their two wonderful episodes. To my wife of 36 years for being my wife of 36 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that reposted on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks.
coffee.